We'll be looking this morning at Zechariah verses 6 through 12 of the chapter 10. Zechariah 10, 6 through 12. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Zechariah chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall, not, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. And Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And the depths of the Nile shall be dried up and the pride of Assyria shall be laid low. And the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would meet with us by the power of Your Spirit in Your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would teach us your truth, but that your truth would affect us in who we are and how we live. We ask, O Lord, that you would bind us ever closer to the Savior, that we would seek the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Today is a reminder of the resurrection. But the resurrection does not come to us in a vacuum. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ comes from the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And His death comes from the price that must be paid so that sinners might be redeemed. And it is the payment of that price that reminds us of our condition, of our condition before a holy God, that we are in need of salvation. And so this morning, I would like us to see from Zechariah chapter 10, the salvation that comes from the Lord. First and foremost, we get salvation's description, what it means to be saved. Second, we see salvation's work, how salvation is brought about. 
And then thirdly, we see salvation's victory. The victory that comes from salvation. The why of salvation. Description, work, and victory of salvation. Let's begin then by looking at salvation's description. Now, perhaps as the text was read this morning, you thought, this doesn't seem to be much about Easter. Those of you that have have been here at Christ Church for some period of time know that it is my habit to simply preach through books of the Bible, one passage after the other. And it would seem, at first glance, that you could not get any further from the resurrection than an Old Testament obscure prophet. But the prophet Zechariah, in what he preaches, is the redemption of God's people by the Lord our God. And once we begin to think about what the resurrection means, once we begin to think about the resurrection as the power of God and the power of God to change us, then it is the story of the gospel throughout all of God's Word. And it is especially the story of Israel. The story of Israel is true and real history, but it is also something else for us. It is a picture for us to see our own lives. The Apostle Paul describes the Old Testament in this way. He says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. You see, The prophet Zechariah and his prophecy was written down for us for our instruction that we might look at the story of Israel as if it were a mirror to see our own story and our own need of redemption. Because you see, if there was a theme of the story of Israel, it would be deliverance from bondage. Of course, the great example of that is the Exodus how the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and slavery under Pharaoh and brought into the promised land. But even here later in their history, we see a similar sort of story. We see the Israelites, the Jews, here under the dominion of a foreign power, under oppression from foreign peoples. They had been in captivity, and as a result... They were under the dominion of others. Now, why had Israel fallen into captivity? Well, the story of the Old Testament is that the Israelites fell into captivity because of their sins. And this is a picture of the true captivity of sin that comes upon each and every one of us. You see, when we think about sin, we must not think of sin just in terms of making mistakes. When we think about sin, we must not just think about some bad habits that we have developed. No, when we think about sin, we must understand that sin holds us captive by its guilt. Our Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 8, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul struggled against this, wanting to break free of the chains of sin. He says, I see a war, a war in my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
You see, just like the Jews, when we see our own sin, we see that we are in chains. We need deliverance, deliverance that only the Lord can provide. And this is what he brings to us here in verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. You see, the Lord is active. He will strengthen and He will save. And He will do so in grand ways. By referencing Judah and Joseph, He's encompassing all of God's people from the very south to the very north. These two tribes here are symbolic of all of the people of God. That God will strengthen them, He will bring them back, and He will save them. And this, of course, is a picture of the gospel. Because by His death, that is what the Lord Jesus Christ does for those who place their trust and faith in Him. Those who are bound up in sin, who know not how to be free from it. Jesus frees us from the chains and the guilt of sin. Now you know what that's like, don't you? Even if you don't flaunt it out for others to see. When you do something and you realize that you have sinned against God, that you have done something wrong, you get that pit in the bottom of your stomach. The phone rings and you think it might be someone calling to tell what you've done. That someone has seen you, that someone can somehow call you out for what you have done. You see, this is what sin does to us. It wraps us up. It makes us do things that it wants. It brings us deeper and deeper into misery, depression, and guilt. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ breaks those chains. That Jesus has paid the debt of sin on the cross. That He lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserve so that we might be free from sin. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ is not just a story. It is the the truth of deliverance from sin. And by His resurrection, Jesus declares to us that He has broken the power of sin and of death itself. He has delivered us from evil. But there is more than freedom found in salvation. Because what Israel suffered was more than simply a lack of liberty. Israel had also been taken away from the presence of the Lord. The Israelites did not know the blessing of God anymore. They did not have the same relationship they had when they were free in the promised land. They had been taken into captivity and now the Lord is going to bring them back. But He's not just going to physically bring them back to their homeland. No, He is going to restore them to fellowship. He is going to make it as if there have never been hostilities before. He is going to make it that the effects of sin are absolutely no more. Look at what He says here in verse 6. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. What a great wonder the gospel is. Now, it is one thing to be forgiven. It is one thing to know that we are forgiven. But this goes further than that. There is now no shame anymore. 
The shame has been taken away from us. We find a restoration of our relationship with God. How can this be? How can we who bear shame for our sins be without shame? How can we who need forgiveness be forgiven? It is only because Christ was rejected for us. On the cross of Calvary, our Lord Jesus Christ bore our shame. He bore our sins. He was rejected that we might be restored to the Lord our God. I will answer them, God says. I will be in their midst. There are now no more barriers to God. Would you be reconciled to God this morning? If you would be reconciled to God, then you must trust in the one who has reconciled us. The the resurrection shows that the reconciliation that Jesus has done is complete and finished. There is no work that we need to finish off. There is no waiting. As Paul puts it this way, In Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Salvation brings deliverance, it brings restoration, and it also brings joy. Because you see, even when we try to hide it, sin brings misery. There is misery in the guilt of sin, and not being able to be free from it. There is a hopelessness In sin, we know that the world is just not right. But when salvation comes to us from the Lord our God, then we know great joy, just like the Israelites did in Zechariah's day. In verse 7, we read, Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. You see, salvation brings joy because we know we are free. We know we are restored, and that makes us rejoice. It is a lasting joy that Zechariah describes as even coming down to the children of those who are redeemed. Now, when I say joy, I don't mean some kind of caricature of stayed, withdrawn, supposedly Christian joy. We're not talking about the kind of half-mouth smile joy. The Hebrew word here for rejoice is actually the same word for to shout with exultation. There's no half-smiles here. This is hooping and hollering. This is high fives. This is rejoicing at the top of our lungs because we know we have been redeemed by Jesus. That's what salvation means. We rejoice in who God made us to be. And this shows who we truly are. Salvation is described in our deliverance, restoration, and joy, but it is also described in the work of the Lord of salvation. We see this first in the power of God. If we think about our salvation and what it has brought to us, the first question that comes to mind is, how does all this come about? How do I get this joy? How do I find this restoration? How can I be delivered from my bondage? Now, there's no shortage of advice 
that the world will provide for you today. The world will tell you there are certain ways that you need to think. The world will tell you there are certain things you should eat. The world will tell you there are certain things you should do. And if you do all of these things, then perhaps you can find joy and freedom. But the truth is actually found somewhere else. And it's described for us here in our passage in a phrase that is small, but is repeated over and over again. I will. Do you see that? In these short few verses, that phrase is repeated eight times of the Lord. I will strengthen. I will save. I will bring. In verse 8, I will whistle. In verse 10, I will bring them. I will bring them. In verse 12, I will make them. Over and over again, God declares that He will bring salvation. That we cannot bring it to ourselves. But that He is the carrier of salvation. He is the one who works the work of salvation. His power is what brings salvation to us. And we see this in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. His power over death. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that death is the one thing that we cannot conquer. There are illnesses that at times we can fight off. There is poverty that we can at times resolve. There are relationships that we can try to repair. There are illnesses that we can try to heal. But the one thing we have absolutely no power over is death. Death is permanent. Death is something we cannot deal with. We cannot bring someone back from the dead. In the Bible we see Lazarus. And he lays in the tomb until Jesus calls him forth. But Jesus himself conquers death. The resurrection shows us the power of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he has conquered death and brought salvation to us. We are the ones in need of saving. We are powerless. We are helpless in our sin. We are the ones who need to be redeemed. We have nothing that God should set His salvation upon us. As a matter of fact, in the story of Israel, God made a point of telling Israel that they were unworthy to be saved, that they were so small and insignificant, it was only His love set upon them that brought them salvation. And there is a great cost, a great cost that God pays in our redemption. Peter puts it wonderfully, these two wonderful verses... In 1 Peter 1, he says, You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, I don't know about you, but the first adjective that does not come to my mind with silver and gold is perishable. When I think of silver and gold, I don't think of something that wastes away. I don't think of something that's not very valuable. But you see, the Lord tells us that this is of no worth compared 
to the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That He is the one who has paid the price of redemption. He is the one who through His power has brought us back to God, who has freed us from the chains of sin and brought us joy. God is indeed willing to bring salvation. You may be sitting here this morning and saying, well, that's all well and good, Pastor, but you don't videotape me at my house 24-7. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the way I am. You don't know how I fall short. And I will answer, no, I don't. And I don't have plans to videotape you. But I do know what the Scriptures say, what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 20, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do not limit the power of the risen Jesus Christ. He can conquer all your sins, no matter how deep or black. He can bring you joy, no matter how down you are. He can restore you to fellowship with the Lord your God, no matter how far away you have wandered. This is the power of the almighty risen Savior. The empty tomb shows us the extent of his power. If Jesus can conquer death, how could he not conquer your sin? The second thing we see about salvation's work is the gathering in of his sheep. Because you see, the Lord does not want us to be separated from Him. Redemption is for a greater purpose. God is gathering to Himself a family. And He gives us a wonderful illustration of this in verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. This is a picture of the shepherd with his sheep. If you can imagine the shepherd perhaps sitting under a tree and his sheep have wandered off, and either with an instrument or with his mouth, he whistles. And what then do the sheep do? They respond. They come to the call. They hear the call. They know it is the call of their shepherd, and they come to it. This is a picture of how Jesus calls us to himself. For Jesus did indeed say, The sheep know my voice. When I call them, they come. You see, even when they are in exile, even when they are far away, the people of God are called by God and they will come and return to him. There's a a wonderful illustration Built in here in verse 9, the Lord says, Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And this verb here, to scatter, is the same verb that we get to sow seed with. Now that should make sense, because how do you sow seed to plant? You scatter it, right? And what God is saying here is, though my people are scattered throughout the world, they will hear my voice and they will respond and they will come to me. Isn't this exactly what we see play out in the book of Acts? How as Paul goes from place to place, he finds people who know the scriptures, 
who know of the Lord and who can hear the gospel and respond and the church is established and built up? Do you remember when Paul crosses over into Europe? He has no intention of going there. He's never been there before. But he literally gets a vision from God telling him to go over into Europe. And as soon as he does, who does he meet? He meets Lydia. The one who knows God, who's a God-fearer. Who knows the Old Testament scriptures. Who can hear the gospel. And right away, believers are brought to know each other. And the church is built up. And Jesus is proclaimed. This is what God does. And He does it beyond anything that we can imagine. He says, I will bring them home from Egypt. I will gather them from Assyria. This is Zechariah's way of saying, you thought the Exodus was a big deal? You thought when we brought all of the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt was a big deal? That's nothing. They'll come from Egypt They'll come from the north and Assyria. They'll come from every place that they can come. And when they come into the promised land, the promised land won't be able to hold them. Do you see that? I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. They can't fit in the promised land. They have to spill over into the surrounding areas until there's no room left for them. This is what God tells us about His call, that He gathers together His people. His arm is not short. His power is great. Nothing can stop God. Not distance. Not sin. Not even death. Nothing can stop the Lord, our God. Well, we've had a description of salvation. And Zechariah has described for us how the Lord accomplishes this salvation. But then the next question we may ask ourselves is, why? Why does God do this? We can see and understand the how. We can marvel at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and at His resurrection. But why does God do this? In order for us to understand, we must go back to verse 6. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. You see, this is the foundation of salvation. When we drill down through all of the motives and all of the possibilities for our salvation, does God save us so that we might be freed from sin and death? Yes, but there's more. Does He free us and save us that we might gather together as His church and carry His mission throughout all of the world? Yes, but there's more. Does He gather us together as a family that we might worship Him for all eternity, honoring and glorifying Him? Yes, but there's still more. You see, the bedrock of the why is God's compassionate love. That is what sets everything else into motion. It is that in Christ, God sheds His love on His people. There is no deeper place to go than that. God freely places His love on sinners. 
Now, does that tell you something about Jesus? Because we will do things for others, won't we? Especially those who are close to us. We'll undertake tasks and do things for family, for close friends, for those who are near and dear to us. But we were sinners. We were enemies of the living God. We were shaking our fist at Him. We wanted nothing to do with Him. We were expressing hatred and enmity with God, and yet He still put His love upon us. Paul says in Ephesians 1, that in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And you see, the story of Israel shows this. They didn't want God. They were lost. They were alone. And yet God set His love upon them. The resurrection itself shows this. They would not have the Lord Jesus Christ. What did they shout? Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Yet Christ died for us. And in this kind of love is a great security. Because if Jesus Christ set His love upon you when you were enemies and sinners, how could you possibly do anything now to separate yourself from the love of Christ? You could not possibly be worse than an unrepentant, rebellious sinner who hates God. How could any one single sin separate you from the love that loved you before you were lovely? The love that was set upon you when you hated the lover. There is great security in this love of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see is a picture of Jesus leading the way for His people. Leading in victory. And there's a very interesting phenomenon in verse 11. Our ESV translates it, He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And I say this is interesting because if you look back up through the previous verses, there are a lot of third-person plural pronouns. They, them, their. There are a lot of first-person singular pronouns. I. There aren't third-person singulars. And this has caused consternation to no number of commentators. So much so that they've done what scholars and commentators think they need to do. They try and fix the Bible. It can't possibly be third person singular. It must be third person plural. And so there are several translations that simply do that. You may have one in your hand. It makes it they. The problem is the Hebrew is he. So what do we do with this? I'll admit it's confusing. The he seems to kind of come out of nowhere in the text. But in God's providence, as I studied this text, coming upon Easter, and as I read from others who have gone before me in the faith, I understood that what is going on here is there is a he. The he is Jesus. Jesus has passed through the sea of troubles. He has gone before us. He has gone through the sea of chaos of death. And He has 
stricken down the waves of the sea. He has defeated death and He has risen again. You see, Jesus has gone before us. This is why as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have hope for our own lives and for the lives of loved ones who have gone before us. It's not something we just hear about. It's not something that we just hope about. We know that we can make it through death because Jesus already has. He has declared it from the heavens. He is risen from the dead. Death cannot hold Him. Death cannot defeat our Jesus. Jesus is the victor over death. He's conquered it. The third and final thing we see that this victory of salvation brings is a renewal of the people of God. We see this in verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in His name. And what we see here is that the victory that the Lord has won goes beyond Him. Isn't that remarkable? It's not just what Jesus has accomplished. In the work that Jesus has done, He changes us. We are made strong. We walk in the ways of the Lord. We are not just made right with God. We are made a new creation. Capable of love. Capable of obedience. Of fellowship and restoration with the Lord our God. This is what Jesus died and rose again to bring about. A new people. A new creation. That follows the Lord our God. What God has done in Christ makes a difference. Not just in the world, not just in theory, but in your life right now. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then today is the day to come to Him. If you have not repented of your sins, then today is the day to repent to be restored to fellowship with the Lord your God, to know the joy that comes from salvation, and to be delivered from everything that would bind you. This is the meaning of the empty tomb. This is the prophecy of Zechariah, that God would gather together His people to forgive them, to bless them, to be with them forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that shows us that we are indeed in need of you. Lord, remind us that you are indeed our only hope. We ask that you would bless us by your spirit and your word, that we might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might trust him, that we might get our hope from him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.